This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. If you have your Bible with you this morning, if you can turn to Psalm chapter 3, Psalm chapter 3, or as some Americans say, Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. I've got a bit of a roundabout message in some ways, which will come, become clear as we go through it. But it's a message which I hope and I believe is encouraging. We'll get a wee bit of history, we'll get a bit of um, background and things like that there, but we're going to go bounce over all over the place. We've got a few scriptures to read this morning. Psalm chapter 3. And we'll start just at verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's all I'm going to read from that chapter there. It's wonderful, you know, David's way with words. I think one of the things we love about David most is that he's brutally honest at times. He just says what's on his heart. And I actually think it's fabulous that the Holy Spirit has decided to preserve it preserve it in the scriptures to give us an insight that these people were real, that they went through real things, that they just weren't holy all the time. Uh, We know very well, and we're going to look at it again, a few things that David's mistakes he made. He wasn't perfect, but I just love the way that he, he just says it as it is. They're coming for me. They're not good people, and things don't look good, but God is still God. I just, I think it's just wonderful how he he presents that picture. This Psalm here was written by David whenever he was going through a really rough time. Um, he had faced many things in his life. He had now at this point in his life, even though we've got this as Psalm 3, he was facing a catastrophe in his reign as king. This is at the point where Absalom has rebelled against him. We're familiar with the story in some ways, and I want to go back to the story and look at it again and just agree again a perspective and appreciation of where, where he was and what he was trying to say. Here he's come to this point in his life where his son has rebelled against him. David had four, his first four sons. He had Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, and Solomon. His son, Amnon, um, which is not mentioned in the, in the story, beyond the background, the inspiration for Absalom's rebellion. Amnon was a man who David loved. It was his firstborn. He was proud of him. He was, he, uh, you know, he was his, his firstborn son. Amnon actually took after David in some ways. Amnon fell for his half-sister, Tamar. He, he was attracted to her. And it was his sister by another mother, as they say. And he, he was attracted to her. And he couldn't stop thinking about her. And who knows that the more you think about a thing, the more that thing becomes bigger and more important in your life. 
And he thought about her more and more and more. And he thought about how he would like to be with her and he'd like to just to be with her. As the story progresses, that's all he wanted. He was purely carnal. Did he take after his dad when it came to Bathsheba? Maybe. Maybe. But Amnon kept thinking about her. Next thing you know, he, he tricked David into letting Tamar look after him. And then he had his way with her and he kicked her out. There was no relationship. There was no courtship. There was no long-lasting wherever after. It was, that was it. It was purely a carnal relationship. Terrible, terrible thing to happen. And news of it got to David. David heard about it and did nothing. Did nothing. Because this is my firstborn. What am I going to do? This, it's terrible. But what am I going to do? It's my firstborn. Oh, come on, I love my firstborn. You know, oh, the heir apparent to oh, You know, did nothing. And Absalom, who was Tamar's brother, he's enraged. He's furious. And he sits back and he waits. And he waits. And he waits. He waits two years for David to do something. Surely the king, the king is meant to signify justice. He's meant to signify righteousness. Maybe he's, he's going to do something at some point, Absalom thinks. Two years he sat on it. And he decided that nothing was going to happen. And he decided that, you know what? I'm going I'm to meet justice. If he didn't give justice to Amnon, maybe he's not going to do justice for me. So I'm going to do something. So he tricked Amnon and he brought him over to his house and a bunch of other people. And at his signal, his servants piled on Amnon and killed him. And then they all scattered, all the family scattered. David wasn't there, but they all scattered. And Absalom ran for it. And he was in exile for a, year, for a couple of years. And through, uh, obviously, this whole experience, David was grieved. He'd lost effectively two sons. Amnon had been killed. His daughter had been degraded, uh, had been shamed. And here his other son now had committed murder by murdering his other son. And David was grieved. Yes, we can look at these people and think, oh, they had different lives. Life was cost so much different. It wasn't the same value placed in life. But this was his son. These were his sons and his daughter, and this is horrific to think of this. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and this is what's going on in his house. And David has led all these things. He's, he's, he's not acting. He should act as a king. He should act as a father. He should act, but he didn't act. Next thing you know, his, his leader of his army, Joab, comes along and says, you know, I can tell, you know, he, he's, he didn't say this, but I can tell the king's upset. I can tell this is something that weighs heavy on his heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and patch things up. So he does. He steps in and he makes a way for uh, Absalom to return to Jerusalem, to come back to the city. So he does. But again, he doesn't see David's face. He doesn't come before David. And you know what? Absalom, just as Amnon had thought about his sister over and over and over again, Absalom had thought about killing his brother over and over and over again, Absalom then started thinking about David. Is he really a good king? Maybe he's had his day. Maybe his reign is over. Maybe he's now, he's just an old man. He needs to go into retirement. He just needs to fade away. Maybe this was all that was going on on his head. Certainly when you look at the actions of Absalom and Amnon and David, you start to see a pattern. You start to see something that's happening in their lives. They've thought about the wrong things over and over and over again. So the scriptures tell us that Absalom starting to get 
maybe proud in his own heart, maybe. Oh, here, David didn't dispense justice, but I have dispensed justice. I have, uh, have, have dispatched the, the foul and sinful Amnon. Maybe, Am, maybe Absalom then became a wee bit more exalted in his own imaginations. And it says that he started to sit at the gate of the city. The gate of the city was the place of judgment, the place of the rulers of the city would gather and they would meet, pass judgments and they would sort of meet the people as they came in. And he would sit at the gate of the city as people, petitioners were going to the king and they would bring their petitions before the king. And as he would sit there, he'd go, oh, where are you from? Oh, you're from Dan. Oh, it's a lovely part of the country, that. He said, what's, what's the problem? Oh, well, my neighbor, oh, you know, he's been bringing his flocks onto my land. That's terrible. You know, if I was king, I'd defend you against him. Yeah, I think you're right. So where are you from? Oh, I, I'm from Bathsheba, uh, from Sheba. You know, what's, what's, what's a lovely part of the world? Nice, nice sort of city there. So what's wrong with your problem? He says, oh, my, my uh, dad passed away and he, he left an inheritance. Now there's a fight over. Really? Well, you know, if I was, I was king, I'd decide on your behalf. And slowly, but slowly, but slowly, people went, you know what, Absalom guy, he's a nice guy. You know, he'll bend over backwards for you. He'll help you out in a sticky wicket. You know, he's a good guy. And the scriptures tell us that all the hearts of Israel turned to Absalom. He won their affections. He won their, their loyalty. David has been, what? The king of Israel? David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who had led them in so much victory? Oh, you know what, Absalom? He, he actually did dispense judgment in Amnon. He's not that bad a guy. And you could see how the nation would turn slowly but surely as words started to spread out. People went back to their cities. And it says they did this for a while. This was over a couple of years. This isn't like six, week, six weeks exercise. He slowly but slowly but slowly started to turn the hearts of the people away from David. And David got word of this. He heard that this was happening. In the scriptures, if you read it, it seems like it happened suddenly. But I'm sure just as he had been so reticent and so reluctant to act against Amnon. Now he had been so reluctant to act again against Absalom. Oh, sure, Absalom's just, he's just, just been nice and friendly. Oh, sure, he's, he's just, just, he's my, se you know, second born. He's just down there showing the royal face and, you know, let, it, let him be, you know. And I'm, but it says in the scriptures that suddenly almost that, that David realized all of Israel's turned against us. We'll turn to that if you, in 2 Samuel 15, where David comes to the realization, I've waited too long. I've sat here for too long on my laurels and all of a sudden the nation's no longer my nation. They've now turned against me. Or certainly at least a, 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 a segment of them has. 2 Samuel 15. Just read a couple of verses here. Well, we'll start at verse 13. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. It says, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Suddenly? Well, suddenly? So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we, sh we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he uh, overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to go, uh, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Now let's go out and we'll kill him. We'll, we'll kill his supporters. 
<laughs> That's what they're trying to say. And the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left 10 women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all the servants passed before him, all the Carathites, all the Parathites, Pelathites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. He couldn't get involved in a a military combat in the middle of the city. Who supports who? Who am I going to kill? Oh, can you kill Absalom? Absalom's not even in the city at this point. So Absalom's left the city and he's proclaimed himself king. David has realized this out of the blue and in a panic, he's like, right, what are we going to do? We don't know who's against us. We don't know who's for us. We need to, we need to get some space and we need to get, some, get our heads cleared. And he actually says, if you go on down there, he says that, that Ita, the Gittite, he says to him, I, we're going to go. I go, I know not where. I've got to go. I've got to get out of the city. I've got to get space. I need to get out in a, in a, a safe place away from the city. So instead of heading towards Bethlehem, which would be easy, it's the city of David, you know, it would be his natural home base, it would be his natural support. Instead of heading there, which is southeast or southwest of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's here. And instead of heading to Bethlehem, which is just below it, instead he crosses the Jordan and heads northwest away from Jerusalem. I will confuse them. We'll really throw a, a herring in the mix. We'll go the opposite way. They'll not expect this. It's, it's remarkable. It's the whole story as it unfolds, as you read it. You see how things that happened are sort of booby traps left by David's life, but things he'd done in the past that he hadn't dealt with have, have come back to haunt him, have come back to, to pay vengeance upon him, as it were. And he heads north. Maybe he was heading towards uh, northwest. Maybe he's head or northeast. Sorry. Maybe he's heading towards Ramoth Gilead, which is one of the cities of refuge. Maybe he's thinking a city of refuge is a good place to go. One of his advisors was a man called Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a, a wise, wise advisor. He had been with David for a while, but he had turned against him. He had gone with Absalom. Actually, whenever you read some of the Jewish commentators on Ahithophel, they talk about his words almost being the words of God because they give them so much weight and so much importance uh, because they were so, they were actually were wise words that he gave and unfortunate words, but there was, there was a bit of wisdom to them. So Ahithophel had fallen in with Absalom, giving Absalom's claim to the throne more credence and more dependability. Oh, well, Ahithophel, he supports Absalom, you know. Oh, this is, this is, this is, this is serious stuff. And you remember David, as I just read there in that passage, he left behind 10 of his concubines to look after the palace, hoping that you know, things will all get sorted and I'll return. And it says in 2 Samuel 16, I don't want you to turn to this one, but 2 Samuel 16, Absalom asked, whenever they got to the city, they got to the palace, Absalom asked Ahithophel, what will we do? What, what, what's our best response? Ahithophel, practically, his first thing he says is, Ahithophel answered, your father left some concubines behind to take care of the palace. Go and sleep with them. Then all the Israelites will hear about it, and they will hear that you have made your father hate you. Everyone with you will be encouraged to give you more support. So they, went, so they set up a tent for Absalom on the roof of the palace, and he went in and slept with his father's concubines. Everyone in Israel saw it. What? What? 
Who was Ahithophel? Whenever you read 2 Samuel 11, 3 and 2 Samuel 23, 34, Ahithophel was Absalom's grand, or Bathsheba's grandfather. What had David done? He had seen Bathsheba on the roof of the house. What does Ahithophel just advised Absalom to do? <coughs> Your dad did it. He, you could do it. What a betrayal. What an act. Ahithophel. This was a man who, who David had trusted, who has now turned against him to support his son in usurping the throne. And now, what's he doing? He's shaming David. He's shaming the concubines. He's, the whole city, this is a shameful act. What David did was horrendous, don't get me wrong. But Ahithophel is encouraging, let's just keep going. Who knows where the nation's headed at this point? Who knows what's going on? Actually, if you, I'm going to read this to you. Psalm 55. <coughs> David actually talks about this. Psalm 55. I've got that many tabs in this Bible for today's sermon that I'm losing. Up. <laughs> Look at all the tabs. Psalm 55, verses 12 to 18. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. Oh, Ahithophel, you were, we were close. You, you knew my secrets. You knew my heart. You were with me every day. We took sweet counsel together, verse 14, and walked, in the house, uh, walked to the house of God in the throng. We were close. Let, now, David gets a wee bit carried away here. <laughs> He's got these times where he just offloads. He calls upon the righteousness of God and the justice of God. And that's what he does next. He says, let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. <laughs> Verse 16, as for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, for he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for, th for there were many against me. You see how it weaves into David's life and into his Psalms, what he's saying? Now, in many ways, Ahithophel became a symbol um, of Judas, who would betray Christ. See, Ahithophel, who betrayed David, the king, Ahithophel actually, it says that his counsel was discounted. David had left Hushai in the palace to give counter advice. Anathan Ahithophel says, advise the opposite. You know, you, you can give another perspective to things. And Hushai was absolute <laughs> genius in the way that he spoke. You read, the way, it's not part of the message, but you read what he said and the way in which he said it. The, he painted pictures with words rather than just giving information. So, so Ahithophel finds out quite quickly, not long after this, he advises Absalom, now get your army and go and get him. Go get him quick, end the thing real quick, which is good advice. Go out there and kill David, and once he's dead, that'll be it. The throne's yours. 
but, he, but uh, Hushai came against him and said, no, actually, don't do that. He's like a beaten bear in a cave. Oh, he's vicious. He's a mighty man of war. His, his valiant men are with him. Don't go after him. So Ahithophel finds out very quickly that Hushai is in the ascension, and Ahithophel becomes less important. So Ahithophel's obviously aggrieved by this and insulted by this. says that he goes home to his home place, he settles, gets all his affairs in order, and then he goes out and hangs himself. Just as Judas, who had betrayed Christ, went out and hung himself after he found out his counsels came to naught. There's a, there's a parallel there. So Hesophel had betrayed David, betrayed him. My, my dear friend, we had sweet counsel together. We went to the, we went to the tabernacle together. We went to the house of God together, and here you've, you've stabbed me in the back. For David, everything is happening. It's all coming. It's all in the shake-up. He's out of, the, out of the, 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 the royal city. He's out of the palace. He's left. He's not even near the tabernacle. He can't go in and, and worship with the people anymore. Everything that he loves is in the city. His reign, his legacy, his presidency, it's all in a shambles. His brother, one son is dead. The other one has betrayed him. Everything has shaken. And David is on the run. I can't overstate how significant this was in the life of David, how much of an event that affected him. He's homeless and hunted. He's got, he's got more people against him in many ways than what's for him, at least to the eye at this point. This is truly a rags-to-riches story, to rags again. The king is now a fugitive, sneaking out of Jerusalem, not knowing where he was going or what he was going to do. His legacy has been destroyed and who knows what is going to happen with Absalom on the throne. After all the things that had happened, you know, his sons were growing up just like him. This, the, and that's the warning for us, as a side, side note, that's the warning for us when it comes to our, our families, given that good, good leadership and good, good image that we give them and the good example that we set before them. Because you do not know what they're taking in. You don't know what they're taking on board. And as David fled from the city, we come to 2 Samuel 17, 27, which gives us the heart of the message today. 2 Samuel 17, 27. My message this morning is called Three Unexpected Guests Arrive. 2 Samuel 17, verse 27 to the end. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the people of Amnon, Ammon, Makar, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Brazilii, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beads and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and, and cheese of the herd uh, for David and for the people. Uh, sorry, cheese of the herd. I mean, it's cheese made from, made from cows. Uh, for David and the people who were with him to eat, uh, for they said, these people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. 
three people appear out of nowhere. They're looking behind to see, oh, is the army of Absalom coming? We've got to get out quick. They're going to kill us. And then all of a sudden in front, there's these three guys. Well, it's not just three guys. They've obviously got a lot of people with them. But these three people appear, these three unexpected guests. They're remarkable people in many ways. The fact that they would come and help the king, not when he's on the throne, but when he's on the run. He's been dethroned, and now he's got nothing but 600 men with him who aren't even, aren't even Jews, they aren't even Hebrews. They're, they're actually exiles from Gath who had followed him. And here the first one is Shobai, the son of Nahash of Rabbah. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had actually gone to war with uh, King Saul. He had been a, a very vicious man, and he had threatened some of the people. Um, it's a story that's found in 1 Samuel and how that uh, he had threatened the people and Saul had been enraged and he got the people behind him and they went off and they defeated him. And then his son took over, who was Hunan, king of the Ammonites. And if you remember the story where, G where David sent his ambassadors to the king of the Ammonites, it was Hunan. And he did was he said, they, they seen the, the, the ambassadors come in. They went, these guys are just spying out the land. Let's shave off their beards and let's cut their garments, uh, exposing their backsides. We'll shame them. Remember that story? And he sent them away again. David was enraged and he went back. So Shobi is the brother of Hunan, the son of Nahash. And he is now ascended onto the throne. I'm not sure if there's much of a throne left anymore, to be honest with you, but he is of the royal line. Shobi, the son of Nahash, the king of Amnon, becomes the head of the family. And as I said, just as these men from Gath, he is more supportive of David than, of the, peop than the people of Israel were of David. He's bringing things to David to support him, to help him. They brought a host of stuff. And if you've seen there in that list, it talks about stuff, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat and barley and flour, and parched grain and beans and lentils, things that were prepared. They didn't quite jump up and go, quickly, we need to grab some stuff and run. There was stuff that they had that was prepared for, to help David, that was, that was planned. They had thought of everything that they would need, beds and bowls and beans. So Shobi came along of the royal line of Ammon. The next person they had there was Micar, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. Micar appears in scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You remember David wanting to bless the family of Jonathan, wanting to, to, to honor Jonathan, and he, said, he asked the people, is there anyone in Israel of the line of Jonathan? I want to bless him. I want to just bless the line. And we find out about Mephibosheth. All these names, they really go out of their way. to. <laughs> he, so he finds Mephibosheth living in the house of Makar, the, uh, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. It's the only other time he appears in scripture. So Makar had given Mephibosheth comfort and protection. Makar was, uh, was a comforter by nature, whether a lame prince or a dethroned king. It was his nature was to comfort, to look after, to protect Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was now an outlaw. He was an outlaw from David's rule and from David's reign. He had been crippled when his nurse had dropped him. And here, my car's like, no, come here. I'll look after him. Bring him here on the, quiet, on the QT. Now you've got King David, who's again on the run. And my car's impulse is to comfort and to protect. 
and provide. The third person that we see here is Brazilii, the Gileite from Rogalim. Before this time, there's not much said about Brazilii, but afterwards in the next couple of chapters and even on into the Bible, we find out that Brazilii was, was an older man. He was a father figure. He was a highland chieftain, some people call him. He was a, a caring man as well. But he has that, that idea of stature, of age, of wisdom. It actually says, if you go on in the scriptures and other places, they, they, he was given so much, he was honored so much that actually one of the uh, school of the prophets, you know, they had the, the, the prophets of such and such, the prophets of such and such, or the sons of, they called them. There were sons of Brazilii. So there's people who identified with Brazilii because of his, his efforts and because of his, his kindness and graciousness. So he's a father figure. He's very wealthy. Uh, comes from a very wealthy area. He sustains David and his company the entire time they are Mahanaim. He brings a, a wealth of, of provision and of supply. It's remarkable. So we have three men who come to find them, three unexpected guests that come to Mahanaim and intercept David. I mean, David didn't even know where he was going, but they, had made, they must have had an idea. Let's intercept him. We'll come to this point and we'll meet him. Three men, one who is royal, one who's a comfort, and one who's a father figure. It's an interesting group of people. Interesting trinity of people. Interesting. Never doubt in your life that God doesn't know where you are. Never doubt that God is not in control. Never doubt that God has left you to your own devices. If you know God, uh, you know Christ as your Savior, and you know God, he's, God is out there to help you. God is out there to support you. God doesn't want you to see facing all these problems on your own, all these difficulties. You know, yes, some of these problems were, as we said, David's own making. These are things that he had gone through and experienced and shown his kids about. Everyone had seen the things that he had done wrong. But regardless of the source of the problems, regardless of the origin of the difficulty, regardless of what is going on, God knows exactly where you are today. God knows exactly what you're going through today. God knows how to meet your need. He knows what you need to get you through it. He knows how to build you up and how to meet you where you are. He knows exactly where you are. This is important. God knows where we are. God knows it. We're not just ants on a map running around that God looks at once in a while. We're not just accidents who just come and worship God on a Sunday and this is the only time that God pays attention to us. It, it, he doesn't just pay attention to us whenever we pray and when we sing praises to him and when we read the Bible. Yes, we, we, we garner and we, we pull in special attention at those times, especially from the Holy Spirit who will open the scriptures to us. But we're not on our own. When we have come to Christ and we've bent the knee and admitted his lordship over us, we have come into a special relationship with him. Right. We no longer stand merely aloof in our own devices. Oh, I know the future's dealt with. I knew I'm going to heaven. Oh, I'm going to go Sunday. Oh, but I know that. that. Listen, God knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what we're going through. Yeah. 
He knows how hard it is for us. And it is hard for us at times. It's difficult for us at times. It can be, whatever the problem can be, it can be so, so difficult because we feel like we're facing it on our own. We feel like we've got nothing to support us. Our family are there, yes. They're there with us. They can put an arm around us. They can put their, their hand in their pocket. They can go get something for us. But God knows down deep in our hearts what is going on in us. He knows, what, he knows our thoughts. He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. He knows exactly. You know what? It's, it's, I tell you, it's wonderful to know that he knows. Yeah. It's absolutely fabulous. You know, there's things that break my heart at times. And, and you, know, I, you know, and I go like, this is terrible. This is, this is, this is, this is terrible. And yet... I don't tell anyone I'm going to say this is terrible. People think, because we still got to have that, you know, I'm a man. No, I'm not just a man, but I'm an alpha male, yes? <laughs> but God knows it. That he knows the very thoughts in our minds, the thoughts in our hearts, the things that we're struggling with. We might be struggling with things that we won't tell other people we're struggling with. We might like to present as a strong face and us. That's, that's nothing. God knows exactly what, where we are and exactly what we're going through. He knows exactly, exactly what we need. He brought to them these three men, these unexpected guests, the comforter, the uh, royal prince, and the father figure. They brought to them beds, basins, and beans. They brought everything they need. I might have ran out of the house to help David and brought with me maybe some food, you know, maybe a few pounds to go to the shop or something. That might be all I could have mustered. I probably wouldn't have thought of beds. I probably wouldn't have thought of basins, you know. Oh, they, they must have had their wives advising them. <laughs> they came and they brought everything that they needed to sustain them, to get them through this difficult time in their lives to give them the, the, the strength not to deteriorate, but to stop and to sustain them, refresh them, and get them ready for what was ahead. Now, they didn't. I'm not saying that these, these men knew what, what was ahead. And I'm not saying that these, this is a, 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 an appearance of the Holy Spirit or the appearance of Jesus. I'm not saying that at all. But I find it remarkable that these three men symbolize God. Don't they really? a father, a royal king, and a, a royal prince, and a, a comforter, someone who was known for being a comforter. Isn't that wonderful? Where, where David is in panic, he's running from his son and from death, certain death. Look, look throughout history, whenever one of the, the Caesars took over and whenever kings in the medieval, not medieval times, but the ancient times took over, the first thing they did is they went through the place, that's who's, who's his rival, let's kill him. I mean, the kings of Ireland, they would do is they would go along and they would get hostages from the family of rival kings so that they wouldn't rise up against them. They'd sometimes put out an eye or cut off an ear so that they would be deformed and unworthy. And this is, this is the exact same sort of thing that's going on. David's going, they're going to come and they're going to kill us all. He's been, he, he was chased at the beginning of his life by his father-in-law, Saul. And here at the end of his life, he's chased by another father-in-law, Ahithophel. He's, he's really got it tough, like, forget the mother-in-laws. It was the father-in-laws he had to watch out for. And here God has met him at this place, Mahanaim, and he'd come along with provisions and supplies to get him through it, to sustain him, to refresh him, to keep him going. It's not an accident that, that David came to Mahanaim. 
Mayhem's a remarkable place. It's a place where Jacob, whenever he fled from Esau and he went to his father's land and, and uh, yeah, his father's land and he went to the house of Laban. And remember, he got his two wives there. And after 10 years, he's returning home and he comes to this place, Mahanaim. It wasn't called that at the time. And he had a vision and he, he knew that he was coming home and Esau was going to be against him. And he, he had a vision. In the vision, he seen the camp, uh, the army of Israel or of heaven, the angels of heaven, the camp of them. And he went, wow. He seen what he had because he had a lot of stuff. But he's, he's seen that, but he also seen the, the army of heaven or the a camp of heaven or the company of heaven. And he realized that he wasn't alone. He realized that God was with him. He realized that God was going to be with him for the rest of his life and that God's promises were good and that they were sure. It's important that both camps, uh, that he realized that both these camps were on his side. Jacob realized this. He had his own physical and material camp but he also had the, the camp of heaven, the, com the company of heaven on his side. When he saw them, he said, this is God's camp, and he named the place Mahanaim. One is visible and material, and the other is invisible, but no less on your side. Praise the Lord. It would remind you of Elijah, wouldn't it? Our pastor spoke a few weeks ago about Elijah or Elisha and the, the servant. And he, he says, Jesus, and he, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see the army of heaven surrounding him. It would remind you of that. This idea that God is there, even, ever, even whenever things are going wrong, when we can't see what's happening. See, I'm not afraid to say that I'm a believer. I'm not even afraid to say that I'm Pentecostal. Because I don't believe in just the material world and all that I see in this world, all that I can touch in this world. I believe in God. I believe in the God of the universe. I believe he created all things. I believe that he sustains all things. I believe that he's got his hand on my life. I believe he's got his hand on your life if you know him today. I believe that God is real. I might not be able to see him and touch him, but I believe that he does things in my life. I believe that he's leading me in a certain way. I believe that he's opening doors for me. I believe that he's touched and blessed our family with favor. We've still got our problems and stuff, but I believe God is there. I believe God is doing things. I read in his word stories like this, and I have no doubt that God's real. I have no doubt that God is for me that God is going to meet my needs when I come encounter them. I believe that God wants to strengthen me and encourage me and lift me up, give me the strength to get through things and sustain me in things. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God's real? I believe he's done something in your life. He's invested in you. He's invested in you. You've got the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit living within you. That engagement ring's not a cheap one. Tell, ask my wife. She'll tell you about expensive engagement rings. He's invested in us. And he, he's going to look after his investment. He's going to do whatever he can to make sure this investment is protected and sustained until the end of the road. He's invested in us. It's wonderful. For David at this time, when he was going through all these things, it was vital for him to realize that he wasn't alone. It was important that he realized that this battle that was coming, because he knew the battle was coming, that he wasn't going to have to face it alone. He was feeling hunted and alone and rejected. But here these three unexpected guests at this particular place meet to give him a message from heaven. But they didn't say, thus saith the Lord. But here's the thing. Maturity teaches you you don't always need a thus saith the Lord. 
It's good when you get it. But you don't always need someone to say, thus saith the Lord. You can read the Bible. You can, God can lay it on your heart. Someone can come along and encourage you with the word to lift you up and to carry you through. These three unexpected guests had that. They brought that message. Now, he didn't know uh, that, you know, that when I mentioned about them being comforter and, uh, you know, when I'm sort of drawing out of it a little bit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he didn't know that. I'm not saying that. But he knew that someone was supporting him. Someone was coming to encourage him. Someone was wanting to see him get through this. Wanting to see him get through this. Whatever we're going through today, whatever you're facing in your life today, God wants to get you through it. God wants to sustain you in it and get you through it. He just doesn't want you to struggle on. He wants to get you through it. And he'll give you enough for today. And then tomorrow, he'll give you enough for tomorrow. But he'll get you through it. Because God is a good God. Amen. God is out for our best. Hallelujah. He wants to see us succeed in spiritual terms, in godly terms, not in worldly terms. God is a good God. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. When we go through things, it's important that we know these things also. It's important to be reminded that we are not alone and that we have not been limited by what we have and what was in our house, practically and even financially. We may be limited, but God is not limited. God is not limited. His resources, his inventiveness, his creativity, things that he can do in our lives and help us, ways that he can get us through, are not limited. God is a wonderful God. At this place, and when these people came to meet David, David remembered that while there's physical component to his trouble, not all his problems were physical or can be dealt with physically. Sometimes the battle is the battle in the mind. It's the battle in the will. And he realized that at this place, that, they, that there's, more, there's other things going on than the physical. The physical can be disastrous, it can be tragic, it can be painful. But sometimes we face things in our lives which can be mental or emotional. And we need to remember that, that God knows all the things. And he's there to help us get through all things. Not just the physical things that we face, but other things we face emotionally and, and, and mentally. Now we might not have a place like May and Ahim that we can run to. We might not go to the city. They didn't have a Bible to read in those days. I'm sure they had a bit of the, maybe they had a bit of the Torah and David's writings. Who knows what he was doing with them at the time. But we have a secret place in our lives or we should have a secret place. Wherever that might be, however that might manifest itself. Sometimes when we're going through things, it's important that we remember to go to our place where we can meet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to come aside from the battle or from the, the, the catastrophe or from the disasters and get refreshed and get sustained. And sometimes that only happens when we come aside to a particular place. We come aside and we focus again on God and we focus again on his word and we focus again in prayer and we focus again on praise and we glorify God and we lift him up. And he pours in the oil and the wine and he sustains us. He gets us through another day. He gets us through another difficulty and he helps us and he meets our need at that time and he lifts us up. So 
We might not have a place like Mahanaim. We might not have uh, Shobi, Mekar, and Brazilii meeting us, but we can still meet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can still meet Jesus. We can still come to that place where we meet God and, and be intimate with him and pour out our hearts, pour out all our discouragements and all our disappointments and all our struggles, offload them onto him as it were and tell him all about what's on our hearts. David, when he came to this place at Mahanaim and met these three men, he actually wrote more Psalms at this place, at this time, at this individual place and individual time than he did anywhere else. He sat down and he was a crazy writing fool. He was just writing and writing and writing. He wrote, attributed to him at this time, there's Psalm 3, 4, 5, 11, 42, 43, 55, 66, 70, 71, and 143. He's pouring out things. Now, you read some of those Psalms, and they're fabulous. Some of them, you're going like, oh, he's asking God to, be, to pour out righteousness, pour out judgment. And he is doing that. And he's, he's doing that. And that's okay to do that when we come to God to pour out all the things that are going on. Lord, strike him down. <laughs> Dispense justice and righteousness, oh God. It's okay to do that. <laughs> Not necessarily that God will do it right away. But it's okay for us to express ourselves to God, to pour out what's on our hearts. And God hears it. And if you read those Psalms, David then goes transitions from pouring out his heart in, in bitterness and, and grief and all the things have been betrayed but then he ends up praising and thanking God glorifying God lifting him up I don't want us to, to turn to this but I just, I just want to read this one just a wee bit of Psalm Psalm 62 5 verse 8 and if you can imagine him at this place waiting for what's coming ahead the battle with Absalom you imagine he's got these men who are sustaining him and lifting him up. He's got the provision. He's got a small camp of people who are with him. He's got this idea. And he says, Psalm 62, verse 5, My soul waited silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I think he got the message. I think he realized that God was with him and God was supporting him. And God still had a purpose, a plan for his life that everything that he had done, all the good things that he had done for the nation wasn't discounted. It wasn't irrelevant. It was still important. When things go wrong, when disaster strikes, or even when it, go, it does not, it's always good to go to the place that reminds us of God's involvement and purposes in our lives. Certainly that is the church. When we come to church, we are dramatically reminded of God's involvement in our lives through the word and through the, the choruses and through the communion we're reminded of these things but our own private times in our own secret place to meet with God at an old landmark that emphasizes God's provision God's supply God's favor God's loving care and tender mercies it's always good it's always good to have that 
The army of God is with us. The people of God are with us. God himself is with us. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. We do not have to face our problems alone. We do not have to believe the lies of the enemy or lie down because we've been attacked. You know, we celebrated there recently Alicia's graduation. Alicia had gone through three difficult years in education where it would have been easy to pack it all in and go, I've tried education, I've tried to go beyond where I was in education, and it hasn't worked. I'm done. I'm done. And she pulled herself up, and she went to tech, and then she just got a degree there. You know, for us in our lives, it's easy for us to get a knockback and a knockback and a knockback and go, that's it. I'm just going to wait for the Lord to take me home. That's it. I'm just going to turtle up and, and wait for the end. It's easy to do that. But if we remind ourselves that God's still God, remind ourselves that he still knows where we are, remind ourselves that God is still God. Praise the Lord, Margaret. God is still God. God's still on the throne. God's still in control. God is still God. Isn't that wonderful? He's still God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's good to know that you're in control. Praise you, Lord God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.